This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would just say put water anywhere but Glen Canyon. And not to beat a dead horse, but we don't have a storage problem here. We have a water problem. And so we don't have a lack of storage. You could, you know, right, if you could transport this water elsewhere, it could fully be stored in other reservoirs. You know, Mead, Flaming Gorge, wherever, just not in Glen Canyon. If you just look at the total math of how much water is in the system and how much storage is available, you could put it everywhere else but Glen Canyon. This episode comes to you from where the biggest river in the southwestern United States stands still, Lake Powell, or Lake Powell Reservoir as it is sometimes called. Underneath Powell is where the Colorado River used to run wild and fast, carrying loads of nutrient-dense sediment to all the riparian reaches of the Colorado River. Under Powell is Glen Canyon, which was the home of the Colorado River. There were hundreds of side canyons here with perennial streams, hanging gardens, seeps, shaded grottos, springs, bird and reptile habitat, fish and aquatic biomes. There was a wet and cool riparian haven for endemic and migratory animals. And once Lake Powell was built, it was all covered up, gone. But over the last few years, those deeper canyons under the waters of Powell have come back out, and they are restoring themselves to that once-known riparian character. In May of this year, I went to Powell and cruised around in small motorboats, getting up into the canyons of Glen Canyon to see for myself and for you what was once here and what is coming back. And all through this tour, I was talking with the Glen Canyon Institute and their executive director, Eric Balkin, to learn what he understands about this place and what can happen if choices are made to not store water in Glen Canyon anymore. The first morning of this tour, I walked down the biggest boat ramp I have ever walked down to the water's edge at Lake Powell to meet Eric and the crew that would lead this tour. How you doing, man? I'm Sam. Good to meet you. You Eric? I'm Eric. How you doing? Good, man. How are nice you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Sam, I'm Davy Day. Davy Day, what's up? Good to meet you. How are you? At the ramp, we did what people do at boat ramps. We loaded our overnight gear into the motorboats, parked the vehicles, and pushed out. We motored at the no-wake speed of super slow for about seven minutes. Eric made a comment that caught my attention. Would you just tell me what you said again? Yeah. Um, It's a a funny irony with my career path is that, you know, as a person, I, I really love rivers, and I wish I could just spend most of my year on a river trip. Um, but you know, a big part of our work at GCI is taking people down into Glen Canyon a lot of times from the reservoir. And so I ended up spending most of my time on the reservoir and not on rivers. So I've kind of become a reservoir person. Do you, do you enjoy, I mean, do you enjoy it at all? The reservoir? Um, there are parts of it that are enjoyable. You know, if I... If I just were dropped here and didn't know anything about the history of Glen Canyon and didn't know the impact of, of the dam and the reservoir, I think I would enjoy it a lot. Uh, but just knowing what was sacrificed to get this, um, it, it makes it 
hard for me to just enjoy it blindly. Can you uh, tell us tell us what like where we just left, and what we're floating past here on the left behind you? So we just launched at uh, the Bullfrog North Ramp on the north end of Lake Powell Reservoir. I guess the central end of Lake Powell Reservoir. And uh, we are motoring out into Bullfrog Bay right now. It's May 12th. The reservoir is about 35, 33 right now. 25% of capacity. The water's coming up about a foot a day. And we're gonna go, we're gonna go see some really incredible stuff that's about to go back underwater. Okay, I'm gonna crank yep, it up. Crank it. See if we can get on plane. Lake Powell is a human-built reservoir created using water from the Colorado River. It is where the Colorado River used to flow free. The Colorado River has its headwaters in the southern Rocky Mountains in the state of Colorado, and this river travels south and west from Colorado into Utah, then into Arizona, crossing the northern portion of the state, creating the Grand Canyon, and then the river runs due south with Arizona on its east bank and Nevada on its west bank, and then eventually California is on that west bank of the river. The river runs south into Mexico and then into the Gulf of California. But today, the Colorado River very rarely has waters that reach the Gulf of California because so much is removed by humans. In total, the Colorado River is almost 1,500 miles long and historically had flows ranging from 400 to almost 400,000 cubic feet per second, or CFS. Today, those peak flows are different but still do have a large variation. This year in 2023, flows in the Colorado River above Lake Powell peaked at about 60,000 CFS. Because this episode is about Glen Canyon, the actual canyon below Lake Powell, we'll spend a few minutes working through the details of what Glen Canyon Dam is and why it is here. To start this, here again is our guest, Eric Balkin, and you will more formally meet Eric in just a few minutes. I asked you earlier if you can do a really short, super hyperlight summary of the evolution that brought about Glen Canyon? Yeah. Different people would characterize this differently, but from my perspective, Glen Canyon Dam was built to harness excess water. The idea of capturing water upstream of the lower basin was around in the early 1900s. There were senators talking about it in the 1930s. If we don't catch water upstream, then California is going to use it all. And they're not wrong about that. <laughs> that's the that's the worst part. Is like they're they're not totally wrong about that. But it's also not sane policy. You know, it's not the best policy approach. And I think we can do better. And given our new reality of living with less water, I think the basin has to do better than that. So, you know, the dam was really built out of fear because Glen Canyon Dam was built to meet our delivery obligation. When I say our, I mean the upper basin to meet our necessary delivery obligation downstream and hold on to the extra. Don't give the lower basin one drop extra that they could develop. And that's what it comes down to. The hydropower and the reservoir recreation are kind of secondary to that primary goal. And David Brower wrote about this in The Place No One Knew in the 1960s. He said, Glen Canyon Dam is a really expensive way of making water flow downstream. And that's what it is. Lake Powell and Lake Mead are kind of sister reservoirs, uh, but they play very different roles. 
In the lower basin, Lake Mead is at the top of the system. It's the feeder reservoir. It feeds all the lower reservoirs. Of course, Las Vegas directly pulls water from Lake Mead, but it's sort of like this top uh, mother reservoir that feeds the rest of the basin. In Lake Powell, it's at the end of the line, and none of the states actually use it. The only users of the water in this reservoir is the small town of Page, Arizona, and the Lachi chapter of the Navajo Nation. And that population is about 7,500 people. Because everything upstream is literally uphill from where Powell is. Yeah. Like, they captured it at the end of the game, but they can't get it back uphill. This dam was built to meet an accounting requirement. Why don't we change the accounting? (laughs) We sacrificed one of the greatest natural wonders on the planet to meet this accounting requirement. And and the the inverse of that, like what Reclamation or others would say is, hey, look, it it stored all that extra water, right? They were built to store excess water, and it did that. It did that for the past 50 or 60 years. But given the realities of water consumption in the basin and the expected hydrology, I don't think it's going to play that role in the next 50 years. Glen Canyon is a massive sandstone canyon complex in Utah that had the Colorado River flowing through it. This canyon is about 160 miles long and runs several hundred feet deep. In the northern reach of Arizona, near the border with Utah, is the Glen Canyon Dam. This is a federally owned dam and is built with enough concrete to reach over 700 feet in height. That is about a 70-story building, and it is just longer than four soccer fields across the top. And this dam is strong enough to hold back the river waters of the Colorado that are now forming Lake Powell, and Powell is over 180 miles long. That dam is made with 400,000 huge buckets of concrete. Glen Canyon Dam is the second tallest dam in the United States, and Lake Powell is the second largest reservoir in the United States. Glen Canyon Dam is very close to the imaginary line creating the border between the upper basin states and the lower basin states of the Colorado Compact and its seven states. This dam was built to hold water, to store water that would be delivered downstream about 300 miles to Lake Mead in Nevada, also on the Colorado River. The Grand Canyon is home of the Colorado River between the two reservoirs of Lake Powell and Lake Mead. The waters of Lake Powell covered up Glen Canyon. This all happened in the 1950s and 60s. This is before cell phones and Instagram and Facebook that are now tools where information is shared about natural resource projects. This dam was built before the internet and the home computer existed. The first color TV images in the United States happened in 1953. This was the era of mellow communication, letters and stamps, some phone calls, reading information in newspapers and magazines, hearing information on the radio, radio being that precursor of podcasting. Glen Canyon Dam was built 60 years ago, and at that same time, a massive movement was successful to keep Echo Park on the Yampa River well upstream in the Colorado Basin from being dammed. Both the Echo Park's success and the loss of Glen Canyon launched much of the modern environmental protection movement. Lake Powell would fill and inundate Glen Canyon, and from that time to modern times, people have talked about getting rid of Glen Canyon Dam. Today's episode is sponsored by a new sponsor with the River Radius and a newer company in the river world, Wholesome. Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. You start by framing your trip with the number of people, the dates of the trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes or you can use one of the 1,000 plus river recipes from the best river outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. 
You can use a monthly or an annual subscription to serve one trip or several trips. This is an excellent tool for River Outfitters and can be tailored for the individual. Wholesome provides videos guiding you through the process of how to use their platform. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, all one word, that is RIVERRADIUS, and use the web link in our show notes to get right to Wholesome. Hey folks, this is Sam. Right now I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue up a river canyon. Here we go, we're going to do some passing. This car is really strong and smooth with its transmission. It feels very powerful, very safe, and very steady. Easy to drive, handles great. Has a small footprint in the lane, and yet it really feels like a big car. It's got big windows. I was driving it yesterday with four big guys. It handled the load great. It handled the space of us really well. This is the kind of car you can put your boats on the roof. You can load the back hatch with lots of river gear. The other thing I've noticed about this car is that it has an incredible turning radius. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. This episode is a presentation of my camping motorboat tour on Lake Powell, cruising up and into the tops and middles of the canyons of Glen Canyon that are exposed right now with the lower lake levels. I went out to Powell and Glen Canyon with the Glen Canyon Institute and Eric Balkan. After a day of motoring across Lake Powell, we sat down in our camp and I set up mics and hosted an interview with Eric. This is a place far up a side canyon all the way to where the waters of Powell end and are meeting an inflowing stream from a small side canyon named 50 Mile Canyon. It was an impromptu camp on a really small spit of land. We sat down in camp chairs and talked through who Eric is and where the organization he works for, Glen Canyon Institute, comes from. Please meet Eric Balkan. My name is Eric Balkan. I'm the executive director of Glen Canyon Institute. I was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm 36 years old, and I love rivers, I love skiing, I love the mountains, and I love being on water. I understand that you first met Lake Powell, I think you were 19? That was when I was probably like 15 or 16. Okay. We were on a road trip with friends, and we were driving by, and we camped, I think, down on one of the beaches by Waweep. It was kind of just like, whoa, what's this big body of water down here? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know much about it at that point. And when did you take the job with Glen Canyon Institute? And then in college, when I was 19, that's when I got hired at Glen Canyon Institute as like an office intern. Because you were going to school in Salt Lake. Yeah, I was. I worked at a pizza shop in Salt Lake. I worked at the Pie Pizzeria. I was studying environmental studies. And this guy came in ordering pizzas for his physics class and asked me what I was studying. You know, I said environmental studies. He's like, oh, have you ever volunteered for any other groups? And I was like, yeah, I used to do volunteer work for SUA. And he's like, oh, SUA, do you know so-and-so? I was like, I know so-and-so. He's like, that's great. He's like, you know, I run this organization that wants to restore Glen Canyon. You should come work for me. I was like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard, (laughs) restoring Glen Canyon. But he gave me his card, and I called him. And two weeks later, I went up and met with Rich Ingebretson at the GCI office in his basement, and he hired me. And I quit the pizza shop. And, and at that point, did you understand what it meant to restore Glen Canyon? Not at all. But did you know where Glen Canyon was? Yeah. By that point, I had known the story of Glen Canyon. I had read the Ad Abbey books, and I had, you know, I'd run the Green River a bunch of times. That's sort of where I got introduced to river running was on 
canoeing and rafting trips up on Labyrinth and Stillwater and stuff. And I, I was very familiar with the river at that point, and I knew the history. So you went to work for, for we're going to call it GCI, Glen Canyon Institute. You went to work for GCI at 19. Have you been there ever since? Yes, with a couple breaks, some uh, extended stays in Hawaii and <laughs> some sabbaticals. But yeah, yeah, I've, I've been there, I guess, 17 years now. You like them. They like you. Yeah. I can't believe that I'm still working there. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean you've had like two or three jobs in your life? Um, I've worked a lot of other jobs. I mean, I'm kind of like a, still a part-time professional skier. I make some money doing that. Um, I was a gardener all throughout college and after college, and I'm a real estate investor. We fix up houses. And so I do I do a lot of stuff. Hmm. Uh, but Glen Canyon is just so incredible, and it's just one of the coolest things. And I feel so fortunate to be where I am with Glen Canyon and just being in the mix with the the changes that are happening here. It seems like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Tell me about Glen Canyon Institute. What is it, where to come from, these things? Glen Canyon Institute was founded in 1996, uh, with the mission to restore Glen Canyon and a free-flowing Colorado River through Grand Canyon. The, the idea in the 90s was to kind of explore if there was a legitimate argument that could be made to restore Glen Canyon. Keep in mind that this is when Lake Powell was basically full to the brim, and Lake Mead, too. Uh, Rich Ingebretson is the president and founder, and he kind of conceived this idea the way he tells it on a river trip in Cataract Canyon. I should say that Rich, when he was a young kid, he went on a scout trip in Glen Canyon, and they hiked up Bridge Canyon to see Rainbow Bridge, and their scout troop leader was like, enjoy this because this is going to be underwater soon. And he didn't really understand what that meant. And then in high school, he went on a boating trip on the reservoir, and they went back to that canyon, and he said he looked down into the water, and he knew where it was, and he looked down into where... You know, they had he had walked when he was a little kid, and it was buried and gone. And it deeply affected him, and he thought that was wrong. And so he had always been, you know, and he was a Grand Canyon River runner, and he was on this cataract trip um, with a bunch of people, and Rod Decker, of all, if you guys know who Rod Decker is, former Channel 2 news anchor <laughs> from Salt Lake City. Rod Decker, 2 News. Back to studio. All right, Rod, thanks. He's kind of a Salt Lake legend. Uh, he was on this trip with him, and Rich was going on about, you know, they ran the big drops. They had this incredible cataract trip. And, and back then, when the reservoir was full, you'd run big drop three, and then blah, you'd be in the reservoir. And there would be jet boats and houseboats, and your river experience was over, and it was flat water time. And he was just, you know, lamenting this loss of the river there. And he was like, this is ridiculous. And camping at 10 Cent Beach, Rod Decker was like, give me 10 reasons why this reservoir should go away. And he was like, all right, Rod. And he started to put it together. And then he started to host some meetings. And then he started to bring in other people. And they, you know, he involved like Katie Lee and David Brower and some of these kind of like old guard environmentalists who had been involved with Glen Canyon. He brought in, you know, the first board meetings had people from the Bureau of Reclamation and Jack Schmidt was there and these scientists. And, you know, it was kind of an exploratory thing of like, is there an actual argument to be made here aside from like a bunch of hippies saying, oh, we should drain this reservoir because it's the right thing to do. And 
the you know the approach back then was like what is the research that needs to be done to start answering these questions to even know this and because of course when Glen Canyon Dam was commissioned in 1956 there were no environmental laws there was no NEPA there was no Endangered Species Act none of that existed there was no public input the federal government was kind of on a tear so one of the first initiatives that GCI undertook was the citizens environmental assessment that sort of took a systematic look at all the impacts of Glen Canyon Dam to try to change a little bit of the foundation of data and the conversation around Glen Canyon Dam. And Senator Orrin Hatch called him out, I think, in the in the news. And Rich's mom called him. She's like, oh, Senator Orrin Hatch said you were an idiot. And he's like, I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> Am I right to think that's like eight or nine years later you come on board? Yeah, I guess so. Was there much change success movement in GCI from the time that they, they founded in that 1996 era to when you come on board? I mean, they've, they've, they've stuck around for nine, eight, nine years. I think at that point, it was just being, just existing, that there was a group that cared about Glen Canyon. You know, it's it was sort of just this subject that river runners talked about around the campfire, and it was sort of like, oh, it was this big loss, but the reservoir's there, um, never going to happen you know what why even talk about it that was kind of the general conversation back then and yeah i don't think a lot of people really took it seriously but what changed of course was climate change that changed the conversation and so in the early 2000s lake powell goes from 100 percent full to 33 percent of capacity in five years and everything changes at that point that's when the I guess if you want to call it a drought, which it's not a drought, it's not temporary, it's, you know, we call it aridification now. That's when that really started to take hold of the basin. And initially people thought that, I should say decision makers thought that it was a, a fluke. This is sort of like a sh- interim drought period, which is why the, the interim guidelines that were written and kind of decided on in 2000. Seven, they're interim to get us through the interim of this drought period that would surely pass. Of course, now, 23 years later, we know that this is probably not an interim thing. This is the new normal. The Colorado Plateau is drier. The atmosphere is thirstier. The soil is drier. And the hydrologic assumptions that really led to the creation of these dams has changed. And so with the change of those assumptions the conversation around Glen Canyon has also changed. So you've been with GCI. I'm going to air quote this for the drought period. And and like, so the trajectory has been this idea that it will go away. And you've been sitting there in your office saying, it's not going to go away. You just wait. And then I'll, and I'll show you, it's not going to go away. (laughs) Well, there was kind of like the early recession of the reservoir in the 2002 to 2005, and that was before my time. I remember seeing an article about it, like, oh, these people down in Cathedral in the desert. I was like, oh, what's that? And then when I came on 2006, that's kind of when the those big water years happened, uh, 2009, 10, 11, the reservoir came up. It would have filled up all the way had they not done an equalization in 2011 where they did this huge release down to Lake Mead. Here's a bit of lake-level information. The gates on Glen Canyon Dam closed in the fall of 1963, and the lake level slowly and steadily climbed, and in 1980, 17 years later, Lake Powell finally was full. 
and the lake continued to be full and near full in 1983, 84, 85, 86, 87, and 1988. And then over the next five years, levels dropped finally by 67 feet in 1993, and then they started climbing again from 93 to about 2000. 2001 is the last year the lake was in that higher level range, and since 2001, the lake levels have dropped. 2011 had big inflows and propped up the lake. And then after that year, Lake Powell slowly dropped down as inflows were smaller. And then from 2020 to the spring of 2023, Powell dropped back to levels not seen since the 1960s when the dam was initially closed and filling of Powell began. This past winter of 2023 with the large snowpack in the southern Rockies is bringing levels up, and how much it goes up will be more clear later this summer. What is known is that there is not enough incoming snowmelt to fill Powell this year in 2023. And, you know, like we're working, trying to keep the movement alive while the reservoirs are full. It's a very different ball game. But since then, especially in the past three years from 2020 up until now, the reservoir has been consistently low for a long time. And if it weren't for Reclamation taking pretty extraordinary actions like holding back water from Lake Mead, releasing more water from Flaming Gorge, this reservoir would have already dipped below Power Pool. It would have happened this year. And so they, they're shuffling a lot of pieces around to prevent that from happening. So, Lake Powell, Reservoir Powell. Don't call it a lake. <laughs> it's not a lake. It's a lot of syllables to say, but... So before I get to the thing that I was going to ask you then, tell me, where are we, like, in this moment? Where are we on the Earth? And tell me what you... What you call this thing out here this this thing that, that that on a map would say lake powell would also say the inundated areas of the colorado river whatever where are we what's out there we are in 50 mile canyon right now we're all sitting on a beautiful little sandbank that is probably at about elevation 35 35 we are sitting to my right i can see the flowing 50 mile creek and to my left i see a disgusting pile of rotting wood that is being pushed up by the reservoir as we speak. So we're we're right at the at the nexus of flowing water, natural flowing water out of the canyon where it meets the waters of, of Reservoir Powell. Yes. Lake Powell. That's okay. correct. What do you enjoy? What do you what do you like, appreciate about Lake Powell? Well, Sam, I'm not a big fan of this reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I I understand why people enjoy this reservoir. And don't get me wrong. I I actually really love seeing people down here having a good time, enjoying it. And they should. It's here. People should enjoy it. I have no qualms about people enjoying this reservoir. I mean, if I didn't know the story of Glen Canyon and I didn't know that what was destroyed by this backed up water, I'd probably love it too. You know, it's it's probably the coolest reservoir in the world because it's the coolest canyon in the world. You could say the same thing about the Grand Canyon, which was also almost damned. Would the reservoir in the Grand Canyon be amazing? Yeah. But it would also be a crime against nature. And the same goes for Glen Canyon. There are just certain places that shouldn't be damned, and this is one of them. So there's a, I think there's a, an inherent notion with with the position that you hold with GCI of... of 
kind of repurposing Glen Canyon Dam, bringing the lake level way down, flowing water through more, that 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 takes away that takes away Lake Powell. For I mean, the majority of the water would be gone, and this massive recreation economy would be gone. We saw this morning at the boat ramp a lot of people putting in ski boats and fishing boats and houseboats going out to have fun. It feels like your beef is not with those people. Yeah, my beef is not with those people. And to be clear, I don't have a lot of beef. I don't have a lot of space in my life to be carrying beef around. I <laughs> I just don't. I'm a very optimistic person. You're talking about the recreational economy here, which is significant, right? Like in good years, it's like $400 million of tourism money that is generated here. And that's significant, and that's nothing to sneeze at. In 2021... 3.1 million visitors spent $332 million in the gateway regions of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and this is the 25th highest visitation rate of all units in the national park system. Lake Powell is managed for human recreation under what is called the Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and that is part of the National Park Service. This tourism and economic input supports about 4,000 jobs, and the total economic output accounts for about $410 million. When I'm thinking about the future of Glen Canyon and what this place could become, the best analogy is a national park, right? We have an incredible national park right above us, an incredible national park right below us. It would be like one of those parks. And if you look at the tourism revenue, for example, from like Canyonlands and Arches, it's it's on par with the reservoir here. Um, It might not be the exact same numbers, but... Part of the reason that a lot of dollars are spent here is because a lot of people are boating on massive boats and they buy a lot of fuel. You know, it's a very fuel-intensive recreation here. One write-up I found from 10 years ago suggests 5 million gallons of fuel is consumed at Lake Powell annually. For comparative reference, in 2022, about 369 million gallons of gasoline was consumed in the United States per day. And in 2022, that same year, about 169 million gallons of diesel was consumed each day in the United States. So again, 10 years ago, it was estimated that about 5 million gallons of fuel was consumed in a season at Lake Powell. And again, I'm not harshing people for doing it because I understand the appeal. I like wakeboarding. I'm not good at it, but it's fun. I totally understand. But it's it's a very fuel-intensive type of recreation, and that that plays into that tourism dollar number. You know, at one point... I read that Dangling Rope Marina was the busiest gas station in the United States as far as how much fuel was was bought there. Dangling Rope Marina is an on-water fuel station on Lake Powell. From a 1991 Deseret newspaper article, this is said about Dangling Rope Marina. Quote, Dangling Rope, its remoteness notwithstanding, has become the largest retail marina fuel outlet west of the Mississippi River. Each year, it dispenses slightly more than a million gallons of gasoline. On a typical summer day, it pumps more than 10,000 gallons into more than 350 boats. This past July 4th, it pumped 36,000 gallons in a single 24-hour period. End quote. Again, that is from 1991. Today, in 2023, Dangling Rope Marina is out of service for two reasons. The first is that the lake level dropped too much for it to be usable in its tucked-up location, and secondly, after being towed out of its tucked-up location that has less and less water, a major windstorm broke the supporting structure. 
This has been a big disappointment for the Lake Powell motorboat crowd, as it was a key fueling location and convenience store on the long motorboat run north and south on Lake Powell. We have to remember that when we're talking about tourism dollars, it's not like a benign figure that doesn't have any impacts. So it's significant, but, you know, these changes that we're talking about, a recreational transition, like that transition is already happening. And it's not because environmentalists want Glen Canyon back. There's not enough water in the system to keep this reservoir full. And I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. If Lake Powell and Lake Mead were full, this conversation would have much less importance, I think. But given that, you know, for the past several years, there have only really been two boat ramps left in this reservoir. Out of how many? I think the, I think it's like eight or nine. And when you say left, you mean that reach the water? Yeah, and they had to extend them. And down at uh, the auxiliary ramp at Waweep only worked because it was built before the water came up. And so it's still there. Lake Powell has four marinas. A marina has docks, boat storage, fuel, and other services. And then there are several ramps, some at the marinas and then at other places. Powell has 11 boat ramps and currently seven are usable. The others are perched above the current lake level. One is listed as use at your own risk. And houseboats have not been able to launch for a few months from some ramps because they require exceptionally large and stout ramps, and those have been unavailable because of low lake levels. This spring, ramps are opening up again as lake levels rise from the melting 2023 snowpack. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation where it's like framing this as like, oh, is this type of recreation more important than this type of recreation? Like, should this be a national park where it's more, you have backcountry recreation or river running recreation or hiking or that type of stuff? Or should it be a houseboat, you know, reservoir recreation? The reality is, is that given the hydrologic trends, like this reservoir is not going to be around. And it would behoove all of us to start at least considering what could come after that and how to optimize for this situation. This could be a very similar place to Canyonlands. Canyonlands is a wonderful national park, and it would be very similar to this. It's a park that kind of is centered around a river corridor. It has access uh, opportunities of all different kinds, you know, whether it's like backcountry hiking or kind of easier hiking, more family-friendly stuff, car camping, all of that, you know, easy access points for people that aren't able to get around as well. It would be very similar to Canyonlands if we had a Glen Canyon National Park. Today's episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed four-door truck with a camper shell. We're on a 6% grade, climbing uphill. Three dudes in the truck, bed full of gear, pulling a trailer with three boats stacked, all the gear. And we are just climbing. This Frontier has a nine-speed transmission. Super smooth, uphill shifting, real steady climbing. Roads are slick, truck's holding great. It's just really comfortable, safe, strong boating truck. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. Wholesome is today's sponsor and Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. I really enjoy having rad meals down by the river while traveling through river canyons, but I do not enjoy figuring out the meals before the trip. I get overwhelmed pretty quick with the recipes, the ingredients, the shopping, the not over shopping, Using Wholesome, you set the number of people, the dates of your trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes, or you use one of the 1,000-plus river recipes from the best outfitters. 
Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, all one word, that is RIVERRADIUS, and use the web link on our show notes to get right to Wholesome. So, Lake Powell and Lake Mead are the second and first largest human-built reservoirs in the United States, respectively. They have both been full in the past, and in this past water year, they were both down to a quarter of full. They are built in the arid southwest, in the Colorado Basin, a landscape that is actively experiencing a shift to a drier climate. They were built based on inaccurate math that suggested the basin could actually fill and keep these two reservoirs full, or near full. So what happens next? There are several ideas. Some are to leave it alone and let it do its thing. That runs the risk of not having enough water to operate Glen Canyon Dam. Some say fill Powell to near full. And some organizations and researchers to include the Glen Canyon Institute suggest that Powell should be emptied and Lake Mead should be filled using water from both reservoirs and be filled as much as it can be. You're promoting an idea that is to not fill Powell. Yes. If, if Powell is not filled intentionally and the water's put in mead talk me through that whole mead first option what happens to the water in powell what happens to Glen canyon dam what happens to the water distribution out of powell i don't think there's much tell me about all those things at the heart of your question is really what is the purpose of Glen canyon dam and the purpose of this reservoir the purpose is not reservoir recreation that's a, a byproduct for sure. The purpose isn't really hydropower. Um, that's part of it. But the purpose of Glen Canyon Dam is to store excess water. And there is no more excess water. When Glen Canyon Dam was built, it was considered to be our country's greatest environmental mistake. And for you know 60 years, it, it stored water. And if you ask, you know, people at Bureau of Reclamation, why do we have this reservoir? They'll say, hey, look, it, it got us through some drought years and it served its purpose because it caught excess water. And they're not wrong. You know, that's not wrong. But the important question is, what role will this place play in the next 50 years? Because it's really unlikely that we're going to have excess water. So, you know, in the days of when the Sierra Club uh, fought Glen Canyon Dam to an extent and you know Ed Abbey was writing about the travesty of losing this place he called it the blue death the environmental movement that sort of built up around the Glen Canyon fight the the thinking was you should drain the reservoir and and restore Glen Canyon because it was the right thing to do the reality is now is that there's not enough water to keep Powell and Mead both full anymore. So if you can't fill them both, why not fill Mead first and let Glen Canyon come back to life? So right now, right, it's it's May 12th, 2023. I think there's about six million acre feet of active storage in the reservoir. And I think there's a similar amount in Lake Mead. Meaning six million acre feet of water in both Mead and Powell. Yeah, Six and six, total 12. I think there might be a bit more in Mead now. Um, It's it's about that. And so 
if you were to magically transport this water into Lake Mead today, Mead would be less than half full. So it keeps coming back to this question of why was this built in the first place? And the reality is it was built so that the upper basin wouldn't lose water to the lower basin developing it. It's a, it comes down to an animosity between the upper and lower basin. And I don't mean to downplay that because it's, it's a very real fear and it's justified in some ways, but that doesn't make a good policy. You know, the, the policy of splitting the basin in two, you could argue that that's a really flawed approach in a way too. Like why, why did there have to be this division, you know, between the states, which is an unnatural division. The reason that it was split into two basins is because the states couldn't come to an agreement originally between the seven states. So they said, well, can we at least split it in two? And then each basin figures out their own program. And that's kind of what happened. But the point I'm making is they were meant to catch excess water. And really the purpose of Glen Canyon Dam is to release water to Lake Mead. You know, David Brower said that in the place no one knew in the 60s. He called Glen Canyon Dam a really expensive way of releasing water downstream. The only people who actually use the water out of the reservoir is the town of Page and the Lachie chapter of the Navajo Nation. Uh, the, the population served as like 7,000 people. And, you know, a city of 7,000 doesn't need a 24 million acre foot reservoir. So under, under your idea, this Phil Mead first, would Page and, and the this chapter of the Navajo Nation gain their water just through like pipes coming out of the river, for lack of a better term? Yeah, essentially. I mean, that's there are a lot of engineering considerations there. Um, but from some of the experts I've talked to, it's not impossible to do it. Ooh, look at all these tadpoles in here. There's a lot of them. Look at all these willows around us. It's so beautiful. So yeah, I think that is a problem that is solvable. And more importantly, some version of it is gonna happen regardless. Some version of what? Of, of a low Lake Powell. Some version of Deadpool is, is going to happen. It's almost inevitable. Unless the basin states have a Hail Mary overhaul of curtailment which there will be some curtailment, right? In the lower basin, it's already beginning. Um, there's just not enough water to keep the reservoir full. And so, you know, losing hydropower, losing the reservoir recreation, um, losing, like all of these things, they're, they're happening anyway. And so we should start preparing for that. We should start preparing for what comes after Lake Powell. Check out this sweet beaver pond. You can't really see the the beaver dam anymore because it's covered in sediment but this was like a series of of beaver dams up here and i haven't really seen a lot of the, the beaver activity in the past couple years so they might have moved on to this spot but you are hearing eric explain this history of Glen canyon dam and the stark reality of lake powell and the decreasing levels even with this deep snowy winter of 2023 that is bringing so much water to lake powell we will come back to this conversation about Phil Mead first because there is the question of what happens to the dam, Glen Canyon Dam. But each time I was walking with Eric in these canyons, he consistently was showing us places where native ecology was returning of its own accord. While Eric is ripe with policy info and historical context, 
and humble narratives of a changing climate. He was youthfully vigorous about the return of the waterfalls and the stream riparian habitat. So, here, right here, we will spend some time with Eric sharing Glen Canyon and its restoring wildscape. All of these walks and talks that you are going to hear are captured in a handful of different locations and linked together. So where we are right now, this is how high the reservoir was in 2019. What do you mean? Where was the water? Uh, kind of at our waistline. Okay. Maybe even a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a friend who was down here and boated in and he said he, he was boated all the way up to here. So we've been hiking for over an hour now and everything that we've seen, all the vegetation, all the sediment down cutting, all the little critters and wildlife, all of that has come back in the past few years. And tragically, we're, this is probably all gonna go underwater again this summer. The tamarisks kind of occupy the high domini benches. And then uh -huh. when you're in the riparian quarters, like where we're walking right now, it's mostly dominated by these willows and cattails and stuff. And I, I keep bringing that up because according to the agencies that are in charge of this place, they don't really recognize that yet. Their assumption is that all the vegetation that comes out is invasive and problematic. And right now we're walking through a beautiful willow grove next to a beaver pond with birds singing around us and it couldn't be anything farther from the truth. This is a, a really beautiful, vibrant uh, ecosystem that this has only been out of water for three years, you know. Uh, meaning only out of the reservoir for three years. Yeah, and look at how far it's come. So this, this right here, you know, we're walking up Clear Creek or we're walking on the sandbank right next to it. And to our right is this like 25 foot drop into the creek, which is now being backed up by the reservoir. And this is a perfect example of sediment down cutting that you see in these tributary canyons. Uh, when the reservoir first came down in 2020 and 2021 and revealed this, this was all a sediment plain right here. This is all sediment deposit. And then over the past couple years, this has been cut down by flash floods and the creek running out. So you can see, it's just an example how much sediment can be moved out of these canyons in a couple years. And we talk about restoration of the canyons a lot. And when I'm talking about restoration, I mean sediment being flushed out and mobilized and ecological succession. And we're seeing both of that here. So you see where the sediment's being moved out and then you start to see the plant life come back. So we're walking around a bunch of primrose plants. There's some old dead tumbleweeds. Um, you can see old dead tumbleweeds over there that proliferated in the first year or two and then they kind of die off. And that's an invasive. That's an invasive. And so you do see a lot of invasives populate these areas for the first year or two, but after that you start to see a lot more uh, native plants take over. Over here in the creek, you can see those seep willows, baccarus, um, and uh, what I think those are Gooding's willows coming up. And you see a lot of wildflowers and stuff like that. You know, before Glen Canyon was dammed, uh, people would describe this experience of coming to Cathedral in the desert. It was one of the crown jewels of Glen Canyon. It was a hike that, you know, it's like you really wanted to see that. It's kind of like, I don't know, Deer Creek Falls on the Grand or something like that. Is that what it's called? Deer Creek Falls? 
it's one of those destinations on a Glen Canyon trip that you you didn't want to miss. And so what you would do is you'd park your boat next to the Escalante River, you'd hike up your river boat. Your river boat. You'd you'd hike up the Escalante, you'd hike up Clear Creek. It was about a six mile hike to get to where we are now. And in in some of those river running journals, people described uh, hiking up this canyon and you're sort of, you know, looking around us right now where we kind of have these massive seven, 800 foot walls around us and they're kind of enveloped on one another. So you can't really see the end point, um, but they said they could hear the waterfall as they approached. And that's how they knew that they were getting close to the cathedral. And uh, when we came out here a couple years ago, we were hiking in, right? And the cathedral has come out several times in the past 15 or so years. Come but, out, come out, meaning coming like the water levels dropped and it's reemerged. Yeah, it's it's reemerged five or six times since I think 2005. Mm-hmm. But you'd always boat right up to it, and it wasn't until 2021 that this experience of actually walking up the creek mm-hmm. to it came back. And as we were doing that, Jack Staus, my coworker, turned to me and said, "He's like, you can hear the waterfall. You can hear it hiking up, just like they talked about in the river journals." And it was kind of this like aha moment of like, not only is this place coming back, but this experience of actually walking up to it and hearing the waterfall, which is kind of a subtle thing, but you know, it, it's those little, it's those little elements of this restoration process that are kind of pop out to you, you know. So that's really special. So. You know, as we're approaching, I think it's just really cool to kind of listen for that waterfall because that's a pre-Glen Canyon Dam experience. I was just going to talk about the, the light in here. So we're going to miss it because right now it's like 9 in the morning and we'll be out of here before the sun comes through. But if you look up, all you see is this little kind of crescent moon shaped opening in the rock to let the light in. And so if you hang out in the chamber of cathedral for a while, you get this light show where right now it's really muted. And, uh, you know, a lot of this kind of hanging garden across from us is in the shade. But around midday or late morning, you start to see the light come through and it sort of peels over the waterfall. And at a certain point in the day, you just have this beam of light that comes right through the back of the waterfall and just lights up this chamber perfectly. And you can kind of just sit here and watch this light show happen. If you look at the sand on the ground, you can see the sun just move across your feet. It's really incredible. That's all. It's just one of the coolest places on the planet. It's about to get drowned again. It's funny having come here so many times in the past few years and knowing that this is the last time I'm going to see it for this go around. It's 
hard to believe. How do you feel about that? I mean, how do you, like, like beyond, like, the policy, the frustrations, the, the belief in what else should be, just, like, just your regular old human side? I'm kind of heartbroken. I mean, it's just, this is, this is a national treasure, you know? This is... This is too special to drown again. I just think it's it's such a tragedy that we're going to lose this again, even though it's probably going to be temporary. I mean, in the long run, I'm optimistic. I think this this will be out of the water for most of the time in the future. But, you know, if you look at this hanging garden across from us, you can see ferns starting to grow back and all these plants and vegetation, the mosses coming back on the wall. You know, in the three years, this is this place is coming back to life so knowing that it can restore that quickly is really encouraging to me but yeah I think it's really depressing that we're gonna lose this in a couple weeks so we're hiking up Davis Gulch right now we've only been hiking really for like a quarter mile I would guess and I'm just really shocked at how much native vegetation there is around us we're surrounded right next to us by a huge uh, meadow of cattails and then um, tons of goodings willows around us and I was here last year and I feel like these have grown five or ten feet since I was here last year I mean I don't know how tall you think these are but to me they I don't know what do you think 20 feet 25 feet um, I was just reflecting on a trip I came on down here about ten nine years ago and you know this was all still underwater so we were boating in and we just camped right up there or parked the boat right up there next to that rock and you know hiking into davis from there it's just like completely barren sediment walking in and now there's just so much vegetation i mean i would call this a grove you know that's like damn near a forest <laughs> right there and and just to think that all of that happened um, in that short amount of time, this is really shocking. And then you can also, of course, see the sediment down cutting. So what we were probably walking in on was this sediment shelf that's 15 or 20 feet above us up there. A lot has changed in a short amount of time here. When you when you're in this place, when you're like here, you, I mean, you're 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 kind of expressing some amazement, astoundment. I don't know if astoundedment is a word, but we're going to go with it. It is now. It is now. Astoundedment. It's been claimed on the podcast here. <laughs> what's um, what's your thought? Like, c- come back to this idea of restoration, that, that this place, you've expressed that you feel Glen Canyon as a whole can self-restorate. Also a new word. <laughs> self-restorate. Yeah, and restoration is not a scientific term. Earlier I was said that when I'm talking about restoration, I'm talking about sediment being flushed out, you know, set reservoir sediment being flushed out, and then the process of ecological recovery, ecological succession. And ecological succession is the process of an ecosystem basically coming back after a, an event that wipes it out. So you see this in floods or fires or glacial retreat. Uh, you start to see succession and it comes in waves. So there's like the first wave of succession and the second wave of succession. And we are getting to see that on a huge scale in Glen Canyon. And so, you know, describing this place 10 years ago when it was just like a blanket 
of sediment with nothing growing on it to where we are now where we've got these multiple tiers that have been cut down um, from flooding in the creek so we've got that sediment movement and then we've got all these cattails and willows around us we've got two beautiful looking cottonwood trees over there that are probably 10 to 15 feet high um, you know this this isn't like the apex of the ecosystem but it's well on its way to restoring so this year it'll go underwater what what does that mean i mean all of it, these will probably die mm -hmm. all of these willow groves next to us those cottonwood trees all these cattails this will all probably die and how long has this been out this right here i think has probably been out for three years maybe this is three years of growth yeah but this is incredible to think that this has only been out of water for a few years and this is how much has grown back. I mean, what do you think about it? What's your impression? That's like reverse journalism. I know. <laughs> but this is a podcast, man. We're yeah. having a conversation. I mean, it's lovely and you can tell it's coming back. It's it, You can still see the sediment layer right there mm -hmm. that's been cut through by the creek. You can see the, the I think, those, I don't know what that is on top. But you can see things growing all around here. Cattails up there. Willow's up there. It looks, it looks great. Sounds great. Smells great. There's, uh, like, I don't know if you call them songbirds, little birds flying around chirping. We saw herons down below. Um, I mean, it's a it's an interesting place because right there is a, I think that's an old cottonwood, dead yeah. from inundation. Uh -huh. We have sediment layers. We have dead grasses mixed in with these new layers, these new trees, new vegetation coming in. Um, all this sediment. You can see all the alkali or, like, mud balling that's happening from the clay deposits. Maybe that's not alkali, but it's a it's an interesting place. Like you can tell it's coming back and it's also been damaged. Yeah. It's a place that's healing. I think the opportunity for the public to come see this and like see that process is a really unique opportunity. It's not like going to a, another national park where it's like, oh, we're gonna see this like pristine, perfect place you're sort of seeing this rebirth area, and I think that in and of itself is a unique opportunity. As we continued on our tour of Glen Canyon, we moved on to another incredible narrow canyon with big walls and a creek flowing through the bottom. We hiked up, and again, Eric and I talked about this version of not storing water in Glen Canyon. That leads me to wondering about what happens to the dam. Glen Canyon Dam is absolutely gigantic. In this vision, does it go away? Does it stay in place and water is passed through it? Does it still get used somehow? We talked about this as we walked. Ultimately, Glen Canyon Dam will have to be re-engineered. There's no way around it. And that's not just for the purposes of people who want to see Glen Canyon come back upstream. Uh, Glen Canyon Dam was not designed to operate in the hydrology that we know today. At low levels, it just can't release enough water physically downstream to meet the delivery obligations of the compact. In addition to that, you have this huge sediment problem caused by Glen Canyon Dam. You have a sediment accumulation problem upstream, and you have a sediment depletion problem downstream in the Grand Canyon. Last, last summer, the Bureau of Reclamation has acknowledged that Glen Canyon Dam will need to be modified which is a very big deal. And they proposed several different ways that it could be modified, um, but they're kind of missing the mark because 
they're just modifying it to eke out a little more hydropower at lower levels. But it'll take probably 10 years. It'll probably take half a billion or a billion dollars to do this modification. And if all they're doing is eking out hydropower for another five years and not dealing with the sediment problem, um, it would be a complete mistake. In my opinion, it needs to be able to pass sediment downstream. Given the long-term trajectory of the hydrology in the basin, Glen Canyon Dam has to be modified to operate at all levels and ultimately it has to be able to operate all the way down to a run of river level where it can actually pass sediment downstream. One of the biggest what, what, is, what is a run of river? It's basically the river running around the dam is how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. So you could create a sort of sluice way where you have two tunnels at different elevations where water, some sediment rich water is released and some clear water is released and you have a more naturalized sediment load downstream. And ultimately what we're talking about is naturalizing the Grand Canyon. We have to be thinking about the possibility of modifying this dam and releasing sediment into the Grand Canyon because ultimately that would be beneficial for native fish species. Those, the native fish species evolved in warm, silty water. And ever since the dam uh, was turned on in 1963, the water that's flowed downstream has been cold and clear. And that's one of the big reasons why we have these three endangered fish species and other threatened fish species. And um, be Because the water's too cold for the, the native fish to survive. They can survive in it, but in the Grand Canyon, they're, they're trying to manage for two ecosystems. One of them is a trout fishery in the 30 or so miles below Glen Canyon Dam. And then below that, they just want to magically have a, a, a habitat for native fish. And nature doesn't work like that. And, you know, we're, we're seeing the humpback chub. Um, it was delisted in the past year, and we're seeing uh, humpback chub populations come back, which is, of course, a great thing. We're so happy that that's happening. But one of the reasons that's happening is because the water in Grand Canyon is warmer. In, in a recent AMWIG meeting, one of the fish biologists referenced a study that was looking at predation of like smallmouth bass and humpback chub in silty water. And the siltier the water was, the less humpback chub were getting eaten. And so if you can imagine a flowing Colorado River through Glen Canyon Dam that brought sediment through the Grand Canyon and the Grand Canyon had silt in it again, it would be like Desolation. Desolation Canyon. Desolation Canyon. Yeah, it would be like the rest of the river upstream of, of cataract or in cataract, you know, like are there going to be non-native fish in there? Yeah, of course. Are they going to make up the majority of the biomass? Probably, uh, but there's still going to be native fish in there. I think it's a kind of tunnel vision approach to just say the only way to help the Grand Canyon is to fill Lake Powell because in the long run, Lake Powell isn't going to be full anyway. And if there's another approach that we can model for and that we can start planning for, why wouldn't we look into that? I guess that's the most diplomatic way I could put the argument. I'm not suggesting that these changes are straightforward, that all the benefits would be clear cut, that it would happen quickly. There are so many variables. This is so complex. People will be studying it for generations, but at low levels, Glen Canyon Dam just can't release enough water downstream 
to meet the delivery obligation, to keep the Grand Canyon in a somewhat healthy state. These problems are, are happening regardless, you know. You know, you can't just like, you can only tinker with the, the balance sheets of all the reservoirs be, for so long before the supply and demand imbalance forces us to change the engineering at Glen Canyon Dam. Okay, so some basic questions. You're not proposing to remove Glen Canyon Dam. No. You're looking for a changed system that lets water and sediment pass through Glen Canyon Dam, almost as if it's not there, the dam, and when it's needed, use it if there's a lot of water coming down, an immense amount of water, but otherwise, focus the storage at Lake Mead. Effectively, yes. I would hope that it's never used again. Um, I think once we start to manage it as more of a national park and less of a storage tank, and we start to collectively appreciate the value of Glen Canyon beyond a storage tank or a cash register, you know, hydropower facility. I don't think there's going to be a lot of support to store water in there anymore. I really don't. We're already starting to see that shift. I mean, think of how much coverage Glen Canyon has gotten by the media the past few years. And it's because people are starting to see Glen Canyon for Glen Canyon. You know, they're starting to see these riparian ecosystems like the one we're in right now come back to life. They're starting to see that potential on the main stem Colorado River. You're starting to see this new <laughs> old whitewater recreation resource, you know. There's no reason that it shouldn't be protected like a national park. If you think about where Glen Canyon is, right to the north is Canyonlands National Park. Right to the south is Grand Canyon National Park. Right to the west is Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Right to the east is Bears Ears National Monument. All of the most prized and protected and celebrated landscapes on the Colorado Plateau. And Glen Canyon is at the heart of that. And if there's not enough water to make uh, to store in this reservoir anymore, why wouldn't we let that come back? Why wouldn't we get that national park back? We're seeing, like, you can see it right in front of your eyes, that given a chance, nature can reclaim itself. And uh, it's, again, it's not straightforward. There are a lot of big variables that have to be dealt with. But there's so much potential here. And in a Colorado River system where the overall conversation is focused on depletion and decline and curtailment and sacrifice and living with less, this is one place we're actually seeing a new benefit. We're actually seeing something come back. It's more than a silver lining. This is a generational opportunity to reclaim America's lost national park. And to be clear, it's not a national park now. It's not a national park, it's a national recreation area. And there's an important distinction between a park and a rec area. And I'm gonna get the wording a little bit wrong right now, but in a rec area, it's managed first for recreation and then preservation. A national park is managed for preservation first and then recreation. And it's an important distinction. And really the ask that we're making right now to decision makers, we're not saying go drain Lake Powell next year. We are asking them to legitimately, genuinely assess this idea of reservoir consolidation in Lake Mead. And I don't think that's a very big ask. And I think it's foolish not to explore that idea. I don't think any climate scientist would say that we're at the bottom of, of climate impacts. You know, ask Overpeck, ask Udall what the climate trajectory is. There's most likely going to be less water in the system in 10 or 20 years, not more. And so why wouldn't we start exploring options to deal with that? 
So there's this benefit of getting Glen Canyon back, yes, but there's also mitigating the problems that are arising that we're seeing at Glen Canyon Dam. It's a bottleneck. Um, it's, it's not designed to function at low levels. It's, you can't plan on having a dead pool reservoir because there are a bunch of problems with that. In that future, if we don't modify the dam, the dam becomes less of an asset and more of a liability. All right, Eric Balkin and Glen Canyon Institute, thanks for thanks your time on the mic and the tour of Glen Canyon. Thank you, Sam. It was a pleasure. There, I think we might see stream orchids on this hanging garden on the left if you look closely. They're very unassuming. They like slopey, they kind of like slopey hanging garden walls. Oh, I hope we see them. I, I have seen a couple in this area before. A Glen Canyon size thank you goes out to today's guests, Eric Balkin and the Glen Canyon Institute. Today's sponsors are Wholesome and the Denver area Nissan dealers. Use the promo code River Radius, all one word, River Radius to gain 20% off with Wholesome. There are links for Nissan and Wholesome in the show notes. In today's show notes, you can also find links to info about the Glen Canyon Institute, Lake Powell, Glen Canyon Dam, the Colorado River, and the Colorado Compact. In July, we will publish a companion episode to this one that will host interviews with the groups who are working to fill Lake Powell. Those groups are the Blue Ribbon Coalition and Powell Heads. Here at the River Radius, our social media expert is Samantha Seiss. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. This is probably going to be the longest outtake reel ever on the podcast and to be clear i don't have a lot of beef i don't have a lot of space in my life to be carrying beef around (laughs) do not put that in the podcast (laughs) don't call it a lake he's kind of a salt lake legend (laughs) i'm not big anywhere Senator Orrin Hatch said you were an idiot. And he's like, I'm sorry, Mom. (laughs) It would be sprinkled in with some F-words. Look at that willow. Oh, you're making me blush. Microphone check. One, two. What is this? You like unique New York. Rubber baby buggy bumper babysitting service. She sells seashells down by the seashore. My whole life is an outtake reel, dude.